You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 13th of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. It's 2000 in Tokyo, 1400 in Gaza, midday here in London and 7am in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Monocle Radio. The Briefing starts now. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Ahead on today's programme, we'll hear from an aid worker in Gaza. The only thing that I do this time, trying to keep my son calm, trying to convince him that there is nothing risky around us. And we'll ask a Palestinian journalist about the evacuation order for over a million people. We'll be in New Hampshire, where our Chris Chermak is hitting the campaign trail with Republican presidential hopeful Nikki Haley. We'll hear about the world's biggest international security body, and Andrew Muller will share what he's learned this week. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. Earlier today, the United Nations said the Israeli Defence Force called for over a million Palestinians in Gaza to move to the south of the enclave within the next 24 hours, ahead of a planned ground invasion. Gaza has been under siege by Israel since the weekend following the Hamas attack on Israel, with no food, water or humanitarian aid allowed in. Humanitarian worker for Oxfam, Halud Jawifel, recalls the moment her home was destroyed by an airstrike. Unfortunately, I have lost my house. I have lost everything. I couldn't actually imagine this. But the only thing that I do this time, trying to keep my son calm, trying to convince him that there is nothing risky around us. All the time we are hearing heavy shelling, heavy pumping everywhere. We have no electricity, no water, very limited access to the internet connection and to the other world. Well, listening to that was Abir Ayoub, who's a Palestinian journalist in Istanbul. Thanks very much for joining me, Abir. I wonder if you could give us more details on the humanitarian situation in Gaza. The humanitarian situation now is really hard. You are talking about two million Palestinians who are denied electricity and clean water, and uh, they are not connected now to the internet or they don't have uh, signals in their phones. Add to this that they received uh, a call in the early morning to evacuate their houses uh, in the Gaza city. Um, they have to leave and they have to to take some essential goods with them. They have babies. Uh, the situation is really, really catastrophic. Well, how feasible is it for them to leave? Where will they go? Um, uh, the Israeli army asked them to go to the south, which is not feasible or practical because you are asking one million Palestinians to go to the south. For my, my family, for example, they don't know anyone in the south. So they spent the morning looking for a house that's uh, ready to host more than 20 members, including 10 children. And at the end, we could find someone, but the space is very limited, very small. And they couldn't, my family couldn't take all they need in one car. So they just took some water and blankets. Um, I don't, I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of uh, families who don't know anyone in the South and that they will end up uh, spending the night um, outdoors. And what does it mean for, for the South, which is already a very crowded area? 
It is very crowded and it's not safe. Uh, it's near the borders. I don't know what the Israeli army is thinking of. I don't know what their plan is. I'm not sure if the plan is to to flatten uh, every building in Gaza City to the ground, which already happened. We, we only have some neighborhoods that has not been targeted since the, the beginning of the war. So I'm not sure what, what, what do they mean when they order people to leave to the south. Are there any routes out of Gaza altogether? Can they leave the country? Uh, not really. You have two uh, borders, the one in the uh, uh, south, which is the Rafah border. It's closed because of the constant bombardments. You have the, the Israeli one in the north and it was uh, exploded. Uh, it was uh, damaged since day one of the war. Uh, how does the United Nations and other organizations plan to deal with this? I don't think any organization uh, has uh, enough, uh, uh, you know, uh, capabilities to deal with this because you are talking about two million Palestinians and the borders are closed. Israel made it very clear that it's going to target any humanitarian convoy going to Gaza. I don't think that anyone now has anything to do uh, to help Palestinians in Gaza. Uh, Abir, the, the Hamas Authority for Refugees Affairs today told residents in the north of the territory to remain steadfast in their homes. Doesn't that effectively make them human shields? I mean, Israel's made it quite clear what will happen unless they evacuate the area. Has there been any change in advice from Hamas since the IDF issued that evacuation order? Well, I understand uh, why Hamas said uh, this, because they explained and said, we don't want to see another 1948. We don't want people to be displaced again and uh, ethnically cleansed again. Uh, So it's not like uh, it's not exactly being human shields, but maybe Hamas thinks if if people don't leave, Israel would find it hard to to kill thousands of, of Palestinians. This is exactly why Hamas asked people not to leave. But as I see now, uh, even people who chose not to leave in the morning, they are now looking for places to go because apparently everyone is leaving to the south. And are you able to be in contact with your family there at all? Yeah, uh, just five minutes ago, they told me with their final decision to leave. However, my father in the morning, he said, I, if I'm the last one in the city, I won't leave. But then when the, the children started crying and asked him to leave, um, he he contacted some of his friends and now they are leaving. They they will have to, to leave uh, like... Um, the car should go two times to this location because one car is not enough for everyone to leave. Um, they just sent me a photo, the final photo before they left. I wish they would arrive safely because even the road to the south is not safe. And how far away is the area of the south that most people are aiming for? It's, um, I don't know by kilometres, but it's 15 minutes by car in the normal but now uh, the, the roads are very crowded with cars. So uh, I think it will take longer for them to arrive. But I, I hear that the Israeli army give, um, give people there like 10 hours to leave. I'm not sure if this is enough. But yeah, uh, it's not very far. But now, as I said, it's very crowded and uh, some of the roads are totally destroyed. This is what makes it harder for people to reach the Abir, thank you very much indeed. That was the Palestinian journalist Abir Ayoub. Now, here's Emma Searle with the day's other news headlines.
Hamas has called on residents of Gaza City to stay home after Israel ordered nearly one million people to evacuate the enclave's largest town. New Zealand's Prime Minister Chris Hipkins urged voters to re-elect his Labour government on the final day of campaigning before a general election on Saturday. Polls suggest a swing away from the incumbents in favour of the centre-right National Party is likely. The British market's watchdog will allow Microsoft to buy Activision Blizzard, the firm behind Call of Duty, in what will be the gaming industry's largest ever takeover. The regulator blocked an initial bid in April but said the new deal addressed its concerns. I'm Emma Searle and that's the news here on Monocle Radio. Thanks, Emma. Anthony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, was in Tel Aviv yesterday and today he begins a tour of the US's Arab allies, including Jordan, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates and Egypt. Well, I'm joined now by Julie Norman, who's Associate Professor of Politics and International Relations at UCL. Julie, many thanks for coming on the briefing. Who will Blinken meet and what is his primary mission? Sure. So Blinken has already met uh, with uh, Netanyahu and with Israeli officials yesterday. And his main mission there was to really reiterate some of the comments we heard from Biden, a very stalwart U.S. support for Israel and starting to get military aid delivered very quickly. But these next few days in the region will also be very important for other major U.S. goals. Those include preventing the conflict from spreading, trying to secure the release of hostages, which include American citizens, and also really trying to get some kind of mechanism, some kind of protections for civilians um, who are in Gaza and trying to get out of Gaza. So Blinken has already met uh, with the King of Jordan. He's meeting with the um, Palestinian president, uh, uh, Palestinian Authority, President Mahmoud Abbas. I mean, he'll be going on to Saudi Arabia, to Qatar, to the UAE and to Egypt. So meeting with several different U.S. partners in the region who I would say all have a slightly different um, angle to play in this. I mean, as you say, though, the U.S. has been so hawkish and made its unwavering support of Israel very, very clear. How challenging will that position be when it comes to negotiating? Yeah, it's a good question. I do think it's a a thing that the U.S. will try and balance over these next few days. Uh, First and foremost, they did want to show that support for Israel um, directly, but also as a way to try and deter any kind of other action from Hezbollah, from Iran, um, from other actors in the region who would maybe want to um, exploit or get in on this moment. So I think some of that rhetoric was very much steered towards a deterrence kind of mindset. And many of these conversations with uh, other partners in the the region where the U.S. has relations will to be uh, to emphasize that that any kind of um, engagement or support uh, with Hamas or for Hamas during this time would be um, you know met with a U.S. response. So I think that's part of it. Um, but the U.S. again also wants wants to contain the conflict as well. And so I think it's this balancing act between the tough talk for deterrence, but also being able to still work uh, diplomatically where possible to, again, contain the region and keep the region as uh, stable as possible. So, uh, again, the U.S. has um, you know some strong relations in the region now where they can do that, and they'll definitely be working that over these next few days. And Iran will be included in those discussions, presumably. Absolutely. Uh, You know, Iran, obviously, uh, the U.S. and Israel have seen as 
uh, a, if not the major threat in the region. Many of their Arab uh, partners in the region share that view, especially Saudi Arabia and some of the Gulf states. So many of the conversations I think Biden will be having in the Gulf in particular will be around this idea of how can the regional actors also step in to try and contain Iran in this moment, um, while also, you know, you know, dealing with their own regional dynamics in terms of uh, Israel-Palestine. Mm. Do you think that Blinken will be trying to salvage the normalization agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia, which does seem, according to some analysts, to be one of the main drivers of the Hamas initial attack? Yeah. So I would say one thing I would note is, uh, you know, I would assume this attack was probably being planned for longer than just around this uh, deal, this normalization deal. And um, Hamas's grievances extend much deeper and further back than that from their perception. So um, I think that's certainly part of it for why they maybe chose this moment. But it's definitely not the full story. Um, The U.S., I think, will be trying to at least keep those conversations going with Saudi Arabia. But everyone knows that this is just not the moment for that deal to be going through. It was going to be extremely tricky in the best of times. And right now there is just not going to be an appetite for it. So I think that'll be put on the back burner. What I do think Blinken will be trying to do is, um, you know, shore up the uh, the relations that already exist with the UAE and Israel um, uh, through the uh, through the Abraham Accords and make sure that those don't get unwound in this current uh, crisis. Mm. Now, Blinken says that uh, Israel respects international law and makes efforts to avoid civilian casualties. However, I mean, we've heard the reports that it's been using white phosphorus and certainly that the complete blockade of Gaza goes against international law. You say he'll be addressing humanitarian concerns, but uh, is Israel listening? Yeah, I think that will become clear in the coming days. Um, what we do know is that Blinken is at least in some conversations to try and um, maybe facilitate a humanitarian corridor, one to get aid into Gaza and also potentially a humanitarian corridor for, for helping some civilians get out. That would be extremely tricky with um, the, way the, the, the way the region is. Um, I do think that Blinken and Biden are um, using this uh, messaging right now um, openly, but probably behind more closed doors with Israel also. But a lot of the rhetoric that we've heard from Israel right now is suggesting that, um, you know, this they see this as a different situation and that some of those traditional norms are, are not applying, uh, which is, of course, very concerning to the international community, as well as obviously to people right there in the region. And what about countries that, that border uh, Gaza, places like Egypt, for instance, uh, who are not opening their borders at the moment? Will Blinken be appealing to them? That will certainly, I imagine, be part of it. I will say that Egypt um, you know, has its own security concerns. They do have a border crossing with Gaza. It's one that they tend to control very tightly, um, you know, alongside Israel as well. But they do not want a massive refugee flow uh, of one million plus people coming into the Sinai either. And they've worked um, on their side to try and uh, and push back at any kind of uh, Palestinian immigration for, for years now. So I don't see that changing in this current moment. Um, we might see some kind of short terms agreement for, again, a humanitarian aid or corridor. But um, Egypt historically, uh, despite Despite rhetoric and despite a lot of popular support for Palestinians, the leadership has not usually come through in terms of opening their arms to help Palestinian refugees. Julie, thank you very much indeed. That's Julie Norman there. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. What can you learn in a minute? More than you think if you subscribe to Monocle's daily email newsletter. The Monocle Minute provides fresh analysis of breaking news and direct-to-your-inbox insights on everything from global affairs to entrepreneurship. 
On Saturdays with the weekend edition, we'll widen your horizons with Rye Observation, drinking and dining recommendations and must-know openings. Subscribe now at monocle.com slash minute. back with the briefing on Monocle Radio. As Steve Scalise drops out of the race for US House Speaker, the Republican Party seems more divided than ever. Our Chris Chermak is in New Hampshire with one of the presidential hopefuls, Nikki Haley. Chris, one of the problems of not having a speaker is, of course, that there can be no legislation and that is a, a, a difficulty uh, when dealing with the whole situation around Israel and Hamas. Has Nikki Haley weighed in on this at all? Yes, Georgina. So I, I was at an event with Nikki Haley here in New Hampshire uh, last night, uh, a town hall gathering. Basically, all of the Republican candidates are here in New Hampshire this week. Trump was here a few days ago. Um, Ron DeSantis is here, Chris Christie, Mike Pence. All of them are speaking at various events around the state over the next couple of days. And Nikki Haley did weigh into the dysfunction quite aggressively, I have to say, uh, with Republicans. First, when it comes to Congress, she just talked about, you know, this this idea that Congress is literally doing nothing at the moment. She talked about the need for term limits, which is something that won a lot of applause. She also said, basically, if there's no budget, then Congress itself should get no pay. That got a huge clap. So there was a fair amount of attacks, if you will, on Congress and the dysfunction and just in general, certainly as well, blaming Republicans as much as she did Joe Biden for the state of debt in the country, things like that, pandemic spending under Donald Trump. She was careful not always to mention Donald Trump by name, but he was certainly a target. And otherwise, just talking about the need for a new generation of leaders. That has been very much one of her focuses throughout her campaign. And it's something that's starting to have some effect, at least in New Hampshire. She's typically polling second behind Donald Trump, of course, who's well in the lead. But it's it's certainly showing that she's she's not afraid to tackle some of the differences within the Republican Party. And I wonder if she spoke about the situation in Israel at all. She did speak about the situation. That was also something where she sought to to find a difference uh, with Donald Trump. She was actually asked about some of Trump's comments, um, talking about essentially the strength of Hezbollah and the weakness of Netanyahu. Um, She sort of aggressively went after that, saying, this is exactly what I'm talking about when it comes to the need for a new general generational leader. It's not the time to be attacking Netanyahu. She said, we can't have someone so clouded with the past that they can't see the future. And otherwise, to some of the points from what you were discussing earlier, she was quite aggressive, I have to say, in saying that uh, the U.S. has to be entirely on the side of Israel, regardless, if you will, what happens in Gaza right now. They have... They have the right to defend themselves. They have the right to fight back. This is what we would do as well. And we can't be criticizing the actions that Israel takes in Gaza. She was very strong about that as well, kind of taking a, a hard right line, uh, if you will. So, yes, a lot of comments about Israel, some comments about Donald Trump as well. Uh, and is she the new never Trump candidate, a little like Ron DeSantis? 
Well, she's certainly trying to fashion herself that way, isn't she? And at least in New Hampshire, if you look at the polls, then yes, there's slowly a little bit of coalescing. She's polling around 15%. In one poll, she was up at 19%, almost 10 points ahead of Ron DeSantis here. That's not the case in other states. In Iowa, Ron DeSantis is still the sort of anti-Trump candidate. Um, so it's kind of between the two of them at the moment, although in other cases, Vivek Ramaswamy, although he's a bit more of a Trump light candidate, if you will, um, is polling quite well. So we'll have to see how this goes going forward. But certainly that's what she's trying to do. The hope is, you know, Donald Trump polls around 45 to 50 percent within Republicans. That's very large, but it's not the majority necessarily. So if one candidate can emerge from the from the massive amounts of other candidates out there, if it could say be Nikki Haley, then maybe she has a shot. And how key is New Hampshire to, to the to the overall picture? Well, it's interesting. I mean, the Democrats have kind of reduced New Hampshire in how much they consider it uh, crucial to the overall picture. The first primary will not be held in New Hampshire for the Democrats, but Republicans still put it right at the top of the list. And you speak to New Hampshire, people in New Hampshire here, and they value their role tremendously as this sort of first in the nation primary. And they they take pride in, I think, you know, looking for other candidates, looking for alternatives, being willing to hear the alternatives and people you don't hear about in the news that much. That's where New Hampshire gets its strength, right? So that's what Nikki Haley is counting on. That's why she tends to have a lot of support here. And she speaks extremely confidently, I have to say, on the stage. And the, the, the town hall in Exeter was packed with people listening, asking interesting questions of her, very engaged. So this is the role that New Hampshire can play, right? If she emerges even in second place, that's quite a strong showing that might get the rest of the country looking at her, say, in a different way. If Ron DeSantis or another candidate ends up pulling forward instead, that will give them a boost. So we'll have to see what happens. Chris, thank you very much indeed. That's Chris Chermak there. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. The Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe, or OSCE, is the world's biggest international security body. However, since Russia invaded Ukraine in February last year, its normal functioning has been severely restricted, as critical decisions like approving a budget and electing a new chair came up against repeated Russian opposition. Despite this, Moscow maintains its presence at the OSCE's headquarters in Vienna and earlier this year sent a group of sanctioned parliamentarians to a meeting in the city. Austria says it's important to keep dialogue going and has even offered to take over the chair to placate the Kremlin. Well, Monocle's Alexei Koryalov is in the Austrian capital and tries to make sense of it all. I think ever since the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe was established and then remodeled to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, it always has been uh, navigating between crisis and then success. I mean, quite often we, we faced a crisis. The Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe has its roots in the Cold War. Back then, it was a key platform for dialogue between Moscow and the West. Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of the government and the people of Finland, I have the great honor... In 1975, its forerunner, the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe, produced a document that became known as the Helsinki Final Act. Its signatories promised to respect fundamental freedoms and human rights, and, crucially, to recognize each other's borders. Since then, this promise has been broken time and time again, 
with Russia's invasion of Ukraine driving the final nail in its coffin. My name is Vedran Zhihic. I'm senior researcher at the Austrian Institute for International Affairs in Vienna. And I think ever since the uh, Russian Federation started aggression against uh, Ukraine and its territorial sovereignty, I think we can't just uh, continue with the OEC uh, with the same pace that the organization was having uh, before the aggression. And we do know that the Russian Federation is simply uh, uh, right now uh, more or less boycotting the standard operating procedures of the OEC when it comes to budgeting finances that other states are chipping in and then trying to help and support. But this is something that needs to be uh, tackled and resolved in a more systematic manner. And I don't see it uh, right now. In the words of the OEC's current chair, North Macedonian Foreign Minister Boyar Osmani, Russian obstructions have paralyzed the institution. Among other things, Moscow has vetoed the only candidate to replace him. This raises an awkward question. At a time when Europe once again needs an effective forum for dialogue, does that make the OEC irrelevant? Good question. I think I have a very clear answer, and that is no. Christian Strohel is Austria's former ambassador to the OEC. Over coffee in a noisy Venus cafe, he explains why the organization still holds its own. And uh, why is that no? Because this is an organization which has been growing out of the Cold War, of the desire for detente in the 1970s, when it was still called CSCE, and then at the end of the Cold War, when it was transformed into an international organization. And that is an organization of 57 countries of the whole northern hemisphere who are definitely not like-minded. But on the other hand, it's also a question what you mean by the OSCE. Because the OSCE has different functions and different parts. There is what you see here in Vienna, the diplomatic machine, uh, meeting incessantly in the Hofburg. But you also have other parts of the OSCE which are continuing to work, the operational part, the field missions, the field activities. So yes, it's in crisis, but uh, certainly uh, no, it's not irrelevant. To the contrary, it's more relevant than ever. And what about Austria? As the OSCE's host country, what can it do to help ensure its future? A last word to Stephanie Liechtenstein, an Austrian journalist who has observed the OSCE for years. Austria has volunteered to step in as OSCE chair in 2024 in case there's no one else um, who can be found. And I think, you know, if you look in general terms, Austria as host to the OSCE and at least 40 other international organizations has an interest um, that all of these organizations, first of all, maintain their headquarters, their seat in Austria, um, and are kept alive, are kept intact. And I would say, from my observation, the majority of states, I think, want to maintain the structure intact so that it can be reused, revived at some point in the future. For Monaco in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev. You're listening to The Briefing. Now, as it's Friday, it's time to find out from Andrew Muller everything we know now we didn't at the start of the week. 
We learned this week that it is important not to let a major war in the Middle East, with who knows what globe-rattling broader consequences still to descend, distract you from the real story. Let's get some news away from here now, and it is breaking news, and the presenter Holly Willoughby has told ITV that she will not return to host this morning. We learned that Sky News, which to be fair generally does a broadly sensible job, and we're not just saying that in the hope of being asked on to review the papers sometimes seriously say 200 quid in a taxi home and we're all yours, had indeed prevailed upon its correspondent in Jerusalem to keep an agog nation back home apprised of the career peregrinations of someone who was hosting a television programme but is apparently no longer going to host that television programme. Indeed. You know that clip we did of everybody pretending to be upset that Will Quince, come on, you remember former Minister for Children and Families, was resigning? Can we run that again, but with the producer balefully sighing Holly Willoughby over every Will Quince? Oh, Holly Willoughby. Holly, no. Will Holly, Holly Willoughby. Changes no. everything. You're tired of Holly Willoughby. Changes everything. What are we going to do? Surely not. And you said we'd never get any further use out of that. You did. You said that. And that's like five goes now. Give me a triumphal fanfare. Elsewhere. We learned that we had been paying arguably insufficient attention to state politics in Austria, and frankly, who can blame us, but still. For we learned that a party coming up on the rails ahead of the next Viennese state election, currently polling a hearty 12%, is the Beer Party. Beer run, do you see? Beer run. Try to keep up. We learned upon careful scrutiny of the Beer Party's manifesto that their platform is unsurprisingly, clue in the name, etc., primarily concerned with beer. The Beer Party's policies, we learned, include the monthly issue of a barrel of beer to every household in Vienna, abolishing taxes on beer, eliminating closing times at city bars, taxing mixed drinks such as the beer and soda concoctions known as Radlers out of existence, indeed the introduction of a buyback scheme for Radlers that said beverage may be exchanged for undiluted beer, and having Vienna's famous Hochstralbrunnen fountain spout beer instead of water. While these obvious common-sense reforms are all to be lauded, we cannot help but fear that voters may be deterred by the Beer Party's more cranky extremist positions, such as investing in green technology, public transport and sports facilities. Weirdos. We learned when we dove even deeper, slow news week and all, that Beer Party leader Dominic Vlasny, a doctor by trade, also maintains a parallel career as a punk rocker by the name of Marco Pogo, Bazing and so forth, singer in a band called Turbo Beer. And we learned that Turbo Beer toys somewhat with the long-established traditions of Central European punk rock in that they're arguably not entirely bloody awful, at least to the extent that you might be amused by the idea of Green Day in German. Righto, idea probably got mallet. But sticking with the subject of mildly hapless modern popular song... 
We learned that these people, i.e. suboptimal Leicester Beat combination Easy Life, had admitted defeat in a contratemps with these people. Everyone gets allocated a seat on EasyJet. I.e. not quite as awful as Ryanair budget airline EasyJet. And alert listeners may already have made some wild guesses as to the nature of the dispute. We learned that Easy Group, which owns the brand name EasyJet and indeed the brand name Easy Life, all one word, had instructed their learned friends to instruct Easy Life, two words, to come up with another name, for reasons which, and we checked, no sane person could possibly care less about. Though we will concede that Easy Life, the band, have done themselves few favours on this front in the past by deploying EasyJet adjacent branding in their own advertising and merchandise. Monday morning feels so bad. What we have not learned as of this broadcast is what Easy Life now propose to call themselves, though we, for one humorous news monologue, would probably counsel against things like the Etihads, the Qantases, or British and the Airways. Nor have we learned whether this is merely the beginning of a wider crusade by Easy Group, for we will draw this line in the sand right now. If they come for the Easy Beats, there'll be trouble. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing, which was produced by Isabella Jewell. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock, and our studio manager was Mariella Bevan. The Briefing is back on Monday at the same time. I'm Georgina Godwin. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.